Her transition. Uh, that was my wife reading scripture, Mariah. Um, so, friends, um, yeah, I've been a dad for a whopping five weeks. Um, yeah, praise the Lord. I have all the answers. So, um, clearly, that's a joke. I have no answers. Uh, <laughs> But as I have um, kind of walked through this whole thing with fatherhood over the last couple of weeks, I've learned something about myself. I've learned that I can get very over-emotional, especially when it comes to my daughter and anytime she starts to cry. Uh, So a couple of weeks ago, we are uh, getting Eden, our daughter, ready for bath time. And all of that, you know, kind of lay her down, get her clothes off. We start to change her diaper, clean her up. And we were kind of worried she was a little sick or was it too warm. And so we decided we were going to take her temperature before we got her into the um, little tub thing that we've got to give her a bath and stuff. And as we're sitting there and we're trying to get her ready, Mariah, my wife's going to take the temp and... You don't check a baby's temperature like the way you check an adult's temperature. Um, And of course, I was like, I'm not doing that. Um, So Mariah did. And as we're sitting there, um, Eden is hungry. She's cold. And she's having her temperature checked in a very uncomfortable way. And Mariah's kind of like, doing her best, and I'm sitting there, and I can't really do anything during this whole time, but Eden kind of is just screaming her cute little face off. She's just crying, screaming, and and she just wants to be fed. She wants to be put in clothes. She wants a new clean diaper, and she's got all this stuff just going on in her world, and I'm like trying to console her, but I started to get so overwhelmed I just started to lose it. I just started crying. And when I cry, it's either like silent cry with like a tear or two, or it's just ugly, just ugly cry. And so I sit there and I'm like watching her and I'm like, oh no, my baby. And I just lost it. I start sobbing my face off. And Mariah kind of like looks up while she's trying to do all this. And she's like, are you crying? And I was like, I don't know. I can't do it. And she's like, yeah, I only got one baby. I can only handle one at a time. Um, And so, yeah, pray for my wife because she could use it. She has to deal with me as a husband. But all all of that, like, I'm pretty weird, obviously. And I look back on that situation and that story, and it's really funny to kind of laugh at and think through. But as I ponder on all that, I start to realize, man, I, why did I get so overwhelmed? Why, why did all this emotion kind of come out at a moment where I didn't really know what to do or I couldn't do anything? And it's because I felt, I, I felt sort of desperate in that moment. Like I was like, I can't do anything to help my daughter in this time. I can't do anything to get her to stop crying, to console her, to feed her, get her warm. Like we just, I couldn't do anything in that moment. And so that led me to just like be over emotional and the truth is whether it's like something funny like that story or something really serious in our desperation there comes just what feels like great darkness in the moments where we feel the most desperate we try to cling on to different things and in our desperation we start to realize and see that we can't actually do anything 
Whether you're walking through depression or hard finances or a situation that's like a job loss, illness, you're struggling, you feel lonely, worthless, whether it's a relational issue, whatever it is, if you feel that you're at the point of complete desperation, there's only one place to go. And today, in Matthew chapter 9, we have a story of multiple people who see that there is only one place to go at rock bottom. That they're desperate for healing, for fixing whatever it may be, and Jesus himself is the answer. And so, uh, if you would, with me, read again uh, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 18. It says this, And he was telling them these things. Suddenly, one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples, they got up and followed him. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players in a crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl got up. Then news of this spread throughout the whole area. Our first point for the morning is the compassionate king. We see the compassionate king. So right before these verses, we've been walking through the gospel of Matthew. And if you guys recall back to last week, Ricky uh, walked us through kind of that first section where Jesus is eating in Matthew's house. And the Pharisees kind of come in and they start to judge him a little bit. They ask the disciples, hey, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then in that moment, as Jesus actually begins to respond to the Pharisees, as he begins to speak to them, a man comes in. A ruler is what the scripture tells us. He comes in and he bows before Jesus. He says, my daughter just died. Come and lay your hand on her. She will live if you lay your hand on her. Now, if we go and we read the other gospel accounts and the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke, we get a little bit more information from those. We get a little bit more information about who this man is and what he does. In the other gospel accounts, it tells us that he's a ruler of the synagogue and his name is Jairus. And so as we start to look at this, we see, okay, there's this man, Jairus, who has busted through the doors of Matthew's house to get to Jesus, bows before Jesus, and ask him to heal his daughter because his daughter's dead. His daughter has died. Now, as a ruler of a synagogue, this guy would be a man who's kind of got high status within their church. He would be someone who, like on a Sunday morning, he'd be planning out the gathering. He'd be kind of planning, okay, what what scriptures are we going to read? How are we going to organize everything to make sure? everything's prepared for the teaching, and he'd be someone who's highly involved in those days. So somehow, he heard about Jesus. He heard that Jesus could come and that Jesus could save his daughter from death. He has complete confidence that he can do that. He says, she will live if you lie, if you put your hand on her. And as I think about this man, I wonder about everything else that's kind of going through his mind. Everything else that he's thinking about, because he's desperate to save his daughter, to bring her back to life. But at the same time, he's a Jewish man with status. And as he runs in the door, 
he sees Pharisees who are rebuking Jesus. And as we look at the gospel accounts, as we've seen in the gospel of Matthew already, and we'll continue to see who's Jesus's main opponent, the Pharisees, it's the Jewish leaders. And this man has some leadership, some sense of leadership within the Jewish community in the, in the, in their faith. And so he has to weigh the odds. I mean, at this moment, Jairus knows he's high status, knows he's a ruler of the synagogue, still decides to bow at the feet of Jesus, even though there's two Pharisees who are standing right there. He would know that there's no way he's going to keep his, his role as the ruler of the synagogue after this. He would know he has to give up his social status in that moment. But in desperation, he doesn't care. He doesn't care at all because he trusts in who Jesus is. He trusts and knows what Jesus can do. And how does Jesus respond to him? He has compassion on him. He has compassion on this man. And so he gets up and he goes with the disciples. It says, okay, so they got, I love how it's simple. Matthew just could, kind of puts it, verse 19. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Uh, but as they're walking, we kind of start this new story. Something else starts to happen. There's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She comes from behind Jesus, and then she touches him. She reaches out. She knows that if I touch his robe, I will be made well. If I touch his robe, everything will be okay. She has confidence that Jesus is powerful. She has confidence that it will heal her. She has confidence that she'll be considered uh, from unclean to clean after this. Because if you think about what this woman sees in the middle of the crowd, because that's what we see in the other gospel accounts, they're in the middle of a giant crowd, and she comes from behind Jesus. She sees a man who's wearing a robe with the little tassels on it. Now, the tassels would have shown and, and, and to the rest of the world, everybody with eyes, hey, that's a man who follows the law. So she knows he obeys the law, and I'm about to touch him, which would make him unclean. And he would know that. So there's some risk kind of calculated in this moment. She has to kind of bust through the crowd, and anybody else she touches would be also considered unclean. And yet she doesn't care at all. Why? Because she's desperate for healing. She's desperate to be saved from everything that she's been going through for the last 12 years. And she reaches out to Jesus' robe, and she grabs him. And how does Jesus respond? He says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you, and from that moment on, she's healed. 12 years. Can you imagine the miracle? For 12 years, she's been walking in that total pain. She's been an outcast. She, she, she's been on the outskirts of society, everything. And just like that, she's now healed. How amazing would that moment have been? And we kind of look at this section, and it, if you read it, and you're just kind of walking through, and you're studying your Bible on your own time, you, you read this section, and you kind of go, okay, this sounds kind of like, it just feels like this story of the bleeding woman is just random. Feels like it's just kind of placed there. Did they put it in the wrong spot? Did they kind of copy-paste the scrolls differently? Is that not where it was supposed to be? How does that work? Well, if we look at this, we start to see that these people are two complete opposites. They're complete opposites in every sort of way, in, in how they act, in every aspect of their life. Now, a ruler of the synagogue, like I said, someone with status, someone who has opportunity. The woman, she's someone who's cast out on the outside with no opportunity or status. 
he uh, is actually helping lead the synagogue gathering, she can't even enter it. Jairus is given a name. We never get a name for her in any of the gospel accounts. Not once. He's a man who uh, has a funeral party. Like we see there's people there who are lamenting with him. So we can see there's people who are surrounding him to mourn with. The woman comes with no one in that moment. In every aspect, these people are completely two opposites. Even the way that they come to Jesus. It says that he came before Jesus and she goes from behind him. He says, if you lay your hand on my daughter, she will be healed. She says, if I touch him. You see the contrasting picture that we get with this? It's, it's just telling for us to see something. These are people who live two very different lives. And Jesus could have chosen to heal one and just not the other. He could have chosen to heal neither of them. But in this moment, what does Jesus do? He looks at both of them and has great compassion on them. He has great compassion on them to where he uh, goes to the funeral and raises the girl from the dead. He has great compassion on the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and he heals her. He doesn't look at the man with status and say, okay, this guy's going to win me some FaceTime with some more Pharisees. This guy's going to make it so I can actually have a platform so people will know who I am and hear my teaching. But this girl, no, she's not going to get me anything but make me unclean, so I'm going to stay away. No. In fact, he looks at both of them the same. And this is eye-opening for us to continue to see that that's the Messiah King that we serve. That's the Messiah King who rules the entire world. He's not someone who picks and chooses people with high status, who come from a nice uh, family, and who have everything right, and then all the people on the outside just says, see you later. He's also not someone who shuts away all the people who have great status and who are on the outside and says, I'm just going to hang out with these people. He hangs out with every single one of us because in all reality, all of us are like the dead girl in the casket, dead in our sin, put away, not with nothing able to do for ourselves to bring us back to life. The Messiah King cares for each and every single person. And in both their desperation, they know exactly where to go. And so we see the story kind of plays out because after Jesus heals the woman, uh, they keep going forward and they get to the place where uh, they would have been having this funeral for this girl. And they see there's flute players. It's kind of a symbol that, hey, they're having a funeral. They're lamenting loudly. And then Jesus walks up and he says, leave. And then he goes into the building, grabs the girl by the hand, raises her from the dead. And brings her back to life. And they just walk out. But when Jesus tells them to leave, he tells them something. He says, she's asleep, not dead. And how's the crowd respond? They laugh at it. Imagine this. I, I try to picture this whole thing, this whole scenario at the last funeral that I was at. Person that I love, care about. And I think about somebody walking into the building and saying, she's not, she's not dead, she's just asleep. Everybody leave. I'm going to go raise her. She's going to wake up. I'd be thinking that dude's crazy. Like, I'd be like, what are we doing? Get this guy out of here. And instead, 
The father of the daughter says, all right, everybody get out. And minutes later, they all watch her wake up. They all watch her walk out of there. Can you imagine just the, the scene itself? Could you imagine the awe that you would be struck with in that moment? The confusion. Like, I, I don't know what I would do in that moment. And it brings me to see this text and see Jesus for who he truly is. A king who has great compassion on people time and time again in these moments. In their most desperate moments. A father who's got a daughter who's lying dead. A a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. In their most desperate moments, they have one place to go. Think about it. The woman's probably tried different ways to stop the bleeding. She's probably tried to see physicians or talk to people to figure out what to do in this moment. The man, he knows that she's dead. There's absolutely nothing he can do to raise her back to life. And yet, both from polar opposite sides of the world, one who's got everything and sees that he has nothing at the same time, one who has nothing but has faith in the one, they both go to the same spot. And they go for healing to the one who actually heals all, Jesus himself. And as I see this story, I too think about how Jesus has walked in desperation in my own life. At my most desperate moments, I was driven to Jesus. I think about even before I was a Christian, in my most desperate time while I was wrestling with depression, I, I was lost in my own world, confused about whether even I wanted to live or die. And it felt like there was this great weight on my chest. I didn't ever even want to wake up. I just wanted to stay in bed all day. And my mom comes downstairs. This was in between colleges at the time, taking a semester off. And my mom comes downstairs. She knew something was wrong because I'm kind of a loud, rambunctious person, and I wasn't being that. And so she knew that something was going on, and she says, you need to pray. And I was kind of like, okay. But on the inside, I, I have no faith in anything. I have faith in myself, and that's it. And so I begin to pray, and I'm like, I don't know who I'm praying to, God, but will you help me? Because I have no desire to live. And in my most desperate time, I was driven to one place, and that's Jesus. And I feel like that's the same story for each and every single one of us, because we begin to realize that when we're on our knees and we see that we can't save ourselves, that we can't get ourselves out of every single rut that we're in in life, whether it's financial, relational, job, or whatever it is. We all have one place to go. We try to cling to other things. We try to escape with Netflix. We try to run to maybe alcohol. We try to run to people and pretend that they're going to fill the void that's in our heart, but ultimately they won't ever. Only Jesus can. And in our most desperate times, we're always driven to the compassionate king himself. And so we read about the desperation that's met with resurrection. We read about how the compassionate king doesn't push the desperate away, but he brings them to life in him. And that's the story that continues to unfold as we keep reading about the next section of people. So read with me verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done for you according to your faith. 
and their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout that whole area. Second point we see is uh, the merciful king. So as they're leaving the, the funeral home, right, they continue to go on in ministry and there's these two blind men who reach out to Jesus and they cry out to him. They say, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, that's a big deal that they call him the son of David because Jesus hasn't been called the son of David except for Matthew chapter 1, where we go all the way back to the genealogy and we see that Jesus is from the line of David. And that's a big deal because it shows that the Messiah was supposed to come from the line of David, the genealogy uh, that came down to Jesus himself. And so we see that these men clearly believed that Jesus was not just a man who was in the family tree, in the family line, but they believed that he was promised to be the king of all of Israel. That he was the one who was going to come and save them. They refer to him as the Messiah Savior in this way. And they beg for mercy. And Jesus kind of doubles down on him. He, I don't, we don't really see it with the other two right before this. But he says, hey, do you actually believe I can do this? And they say, yes, Lord, we believe. So he reaches out his hand, touches their eyes, and he heals them. According to their faith, their eyes were open. Now this... Scripture can lead to a bunch of questions here in the passage, right? We might read this and wonder, why are some people healed and some people aren't? We might read this and wonder, hey, are we not healed because we don't have enough faith? Like, I just need to trust God more, and that's why I'm still struggling. That's why I'm still going through this. And these passages, I know, in the past maybe have been used to teach people that they're not healed because they don't have enough faith, and they just need to have more faith, and you need, you need to trust God more, and then you're going to be healed, and then everything's going to be okay. I think that's a poor teaching of this scripture. I think it's a manipulation of this scripture. And, and if anyone's ever told you that, I'm sorry. Because I, I don't believe that's at all what Jesus is teaching or even saying. Because if we put our faith in how much faith we have, our faith is in ourselves. It's not actually in Jesus. It's not actually in the one true king. It's not the amount of faith we have, but it's the object of our faith. It's where our faith is placed. And we see in these two sections right before this, and even with the blind man too, he doesn't say, hey, Jarius, I'm going to raise your daughter from the dead because you trusted in me more than the crowd. He, he doesn't tell the woman, hey, I'm going to heal you in this crowd because you trust me more than maybe the other person in the crowd who's also got something going on. It, it's never in the amount of faith that they have, but it's in who they have placed their faith in. And, and I love the way that uh, the CSB, the version that we use to preach out of, uh, translates verse 29 because it says, according to your faith. It doesn't say in proportion to your faith. And that's how the grammar is structured in the Greek to see that it's where our faith is placed in, and that's Jesus himself. But that still leaves us with the question, okay, I trust in Jesus, so why do I get sick? Why do family members get sick? Why am I still wrestling with this, whatever it is? And you might be sitting there thinking, Alex, like you're saying, put your faith in Jesus. Why am I not healed? Well, friends, I don't know why Jesus heals some and doesn't heal others. I have no idea why he chooses to do that. But what I do know is that it's a grace 
that we even have these stories. I mean, it's amazing that we get to see and read that God could actually do that, that he did do that with some people. And as we read these sections and we wrestle with those questions about why one person's healed and why one person's cancer is gone and the next person isn't or whatever it might be that you might have and you're wrestling with in your life, it also helps us to point forward. Because at the end of the days, we know that Jesus says, I will wipe away every tear. I will make all things new. And we will have a new and perfect and everlasting life with Christ himself. That he will restore all things and that he will do away with all disease, with all sickness, with all illness. And we can completely trust in the fact that we will be restored. And we will have new life with Christ. If we trust in him. If we put our faith in him. And here's the thing though. As we wrestle with all of this, we can put our faith in a miracle happening. And say it's faith in God. But truly, we need to actually trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for us as he's taken the cross for us. Because I know that there will be no more pain, no more suffering. And that's an amazing gift that we get to have at the end of days when Jesus returns, restores all things. But the greatest gift that we have at all is Christ himself. It's life with the one true king. Life with Jesus for all of eternity. And as we think of all the people in these stories... Not a single one of them tell Jesus, hey, if you heal, then I'll do this for you. None of them try to offer sacrifices or buy him over. And the reality is they couldn't. There's nothing they could do to earn favor with him. And yet he's merciful towards them. Because we think of these blind men, it's a reminder to us that they may have been physically blind, but they could see much better than some of the other people in that time because they were not spiritually blind. They truly knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that he was the Savior of the world. They knew and had confidence in his true identity. Knowing who Jesus is, these blind men uh, went to go and continue to worship him. And as Jesus heals them, Here's the crazy part right after this. He tells them, hey, be sure that no one finds out. You just changed my life forever, and you're telling me to be sure that nobody finds out. Yeah, they don't obey. They just are like, I'm going to go tell everybody. Anybody else been saved by grace and then continue to sin sometimes? No one. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Uh, actually, all of us. Um, but anyway, uh, that's a good joke. <laughs> okay. Uh, in the entire Bible, there's a bunch of different miracles that happen. You kind of start reading the scriptures in your own time, and you're going to see miracle after miracle, crazy thing after crazy thing that kind of happens, right? There's demons that are cast out. Jesus heals the blind. We see snakes being turned into staff, a, a, a total river just like goes up and people can walk right through it. Like there's crazy things that happen. And of all the miracles, the only one to heal the blind is Jesus himself. Now, Isaiah chapter 35, verse four and six, it reads this. It says, here's your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. I imagine these men had those verses just in the back of their minds, continually thinking about the Messiah who would continue to restore all things and make all things new. 
a king who has mercy on people who don't deserve it, who have done nothing to earn it, who have nothing to even offer, went to him in their despair, went to him at their darkest moments. Again, with nowhere else to run, we see these two blind men run to Jesus in their most desperate moment, and a king of mercy responded to them because of their faith in him. So let's keep reading uh, who else Jesus heals. Verse 32. Just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. When the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Now, we're left with this last story, and leaving the blind men, we get to this moment where there are some friends of a demon-possessed man who wasn't able to speak, and they bring him to Jesus. Kind of like, wow, whoever brought the demon-possessed man, they got great courage. Because if I saw somebody who was possessed by a demon, I don't know that I'd be like, let me pick you up and come with me. I'd be kind of scared when you guys... Yeah, a little like, ah, what do I do? But by God's grace, these people were very courageous. And they bring him to Jesus, can't speak, can't ask for mercy himself, can't beg Jesus to heal him. And yet Jesus cast the demon out. And then they were able to speak. How's the crowd respond? Nothing like this in all of Israel has ever been seen. They're amazed at what Jesus has done. They see the power of Jesus finally, as if raising the dead girl, healing the bleeding woman, the blind men weren't enough. Finally, they see the power of Jesus. His authority is clearly on display as he casts out the demons, right? This man has great power. But when we look at this whole thing, I look at the Pharisees and how they respond. What do they do? After they see Jesus cast out this demon, I imagine this, is, I imagine this whole scene kind of tracking. And the Pharisees are kind of watching all of this happen. And then it gets to this point, and they say, hmm, cast out demons. He's the prince of demons. He just healed a bleeding woman, raised a girl from the dead, was called the son of David, had mercy on blind men, now cast out a demon, and so he's a demon prince guy. It makes me go all the way back to kind of the middle, the early section in chapter 9. Ricky preached over it last week, but verses 12 to 13. Jesus says this to the Pharisees. It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. How did the Pharisees respond? They watch a man bust through the doors at that moment and say, my daughter is dead. My daughter is sick. Come and heal her. Who heals her? Jesus does. They watch a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years on the outside beg for Jesus to heal her. What does Jesus do? He heals her. They watch blind men beg for mercy. What does Jesus desire? Mercy and not sacrifice. And he gives them mercy. Then he casts out a demon and shows that 
he, he's not a prince of demons, but he's the prince of kings, or the prince of peace, the king of kings, the lord of lords. That, that's who Jesus is. This whole time, he's been revealing to them who he is as he does these miracles, because ultimately, he doesn't want people to see some fancy magic trick, but he wants them to see his true identity as the Messiah. He wants them to see that he's truly the king of the entire universe, who's come to seek and save the lost, who's come for the sick, who continues to care for every single person on this earth as he gave his life for them. And so my question for us today is, do we see Jesus? Have we truly seen him as he is? Because as we look at this story, and we kind of read it, and if you're on your own devotional time and you're reading it, and you're kind of like, yeah, 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 okay, application time. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm like Jarius who bows down at Jesus' feet and begs him. I'm I'm like the woman who's constantly chasing after Jesus and trying to, you know, get my hands on him. I'm like the blind men who are begging Jesus for mercy all the time and, and just begging him to have mercy on me. I, I'm like the friend who brings the demon-possessed man to Jesus. And as I read this, I think it's easy to get caught up in that, but the reality is we're like the dead girl who's in the casket, can't bring herself back to life. We're like the Pharisees who are constantly grabbing on to different things in this earth and saying that, hey, in desperation, you can grab onto works. You can grab onto sacrifices. You just do these things and then everything's going to be okay. But truly, that's not who Jesus is. And I think it's a heart check for us to really see these pieces of scripture and be reminded that, man, we are spiritually dead. That, that, we couldn't do anything to save ourselves. That as we're in moments of desperation, as, as things happen in our life, as we ponder on why they're happening, why we're wrestling through these things, as, as we're in our most desperate moments, what are we turning to? Is it things of the world? Or returning to the one who actually gives us life? Is it something that's going to buy us time for just a little bit longer to make us feel just a little bit stronger? Or is it in Jesus? Because we see here clearly, time and time again, people in their most desperate moments are, different, are, are driven to the one who actually gives them life and who can continue to restore and point them to who he truly is. We can respond by putting our faith in Jesus. We can respond by knowing that Jesus continues to heal people and he will heal at the end of days. We can trust in a God who doesn't just do miracles that make us happy for a, a certain amount of time, but we can trust in a God who gives us everlasting life, who gave his own life for us so that we could be with him that he resurrects the dead, and we're the ones who are dead. But we could be made alive together with Christ. Jesus himself is the one who touches the unclean and makes them clean. That he takes on our uncleanliness, and we could be made right with him, right? That we take on his righteousness when we trust in him. That we see the compassionate king who has great compassion on us in the moments of our weakness. That we can trust that he's merciful uh, and he has mercy on those who he has mercy. And we don't deserve it at all. We can trust that he's powerful, that he can conquer sin and death, that he rose from the grave. And we can have everlasting life in him. So if you've never believed in that Jesus, would you believe in him today? Would you give your life to the amazing, merciful, compassionate, powerful king that we serve? The God of the universe who came to seek and save the lost, who came to be the physician for the sick, 
who in our most desperate moments we can go to. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the amazing gift of these scriptures. I thank you for the stories that they reveal to us and show us that you were a God who continues to move in our lives. That these just weren't stories that somebody writ, wrote down, but this is actual truth that you actually healed uh, all these people. And that it's an example for us to see that you can continue to be at work to save lives. Lord, I pray that we would continue to trust in you and that if, if there's anyone in this room who doesn't trust in you, Jesus, I pray that they would come to saving faith, that you would continue to pursue them and let them know that you care for them and that you died for them and that you want to give them life in you. Jesus, I pray that in our most desperate moments that your light would shine so bright that we turn to you and you alone. It's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.